0: Buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Ward, and today I am very excited to share with you guys Dr. Will Borswitz, who is the expert in all things gut health. You may already know him from his popular Instagram account, at theguthealthmd, but if you don't, make sure you head on over and give him a follow. Now, Dr. B, as he's more famously known, is double board certified in gastroenterology and internal medicine. He works full-time as a gut health doctor in his busy clinic in Charleston, South Carolina in the United States. He's the author of more than 20 peer-reviewed scientific articles and is in the process of authoring a book on gut health and nutrition to be published by Penguin Random House in early 2020. I know you guys are going to love this episode with Dr. B today and afterwards, we would appreciate so much if you connected with us on social media and share this episode to your stories to help us spread the word because trust me guys, this episode with Dr. B is absolutely incredible. So let's jump right in. Welcome, Doctor B, to the podcast. I am super, super excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Ah, oh, it's cool. I'm uh, super excited to be here, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me on. And you know, it's the um, beauty of social media and the internet. Like, there's obviously a lot of downsides, but one of the upsides is that you can be literally on the other side of the world, and we can connect and talk and have a conversation. I'm looking at you right now. And it's really cool. So, thank you for having me on.
0: I'm so excited, and um, my followers and my listeners are going to be very, very excited to hear what you have to say because I think gut health is something that everybody is just, um, I guess, obsessed with at the moment. It's such a it's such a topical thing on social media. But I see so much, um, I guess, things that I, I just, I sort of. Not roll my eyes out as such, but there's a lot, there's a lot of talk and a lot of noise when it comes to the gut health um, space. So I'm really, um, really going to um, enjoy hearing your um, thoughts and uh, background, I guess, in a lot of these um, different issues to do with our gut and to do with our health. Um, so to start with, I'd really love to know, I guess, why you yourself got into medicine and why gastroenterology is where the field that you chose because i myself wanted to be a doctor um and then i wanted to be a physiotherapist and then i ended up um in nutrition and dietetics um so i guess for me it started with just that that want to help people and i guess anybody in the health field we have that that notion that we just want to help people so for you why medicine and why why the field of gastroenterology well, I
1: mean, you would have been an amazing doctor or an amazing physiotherapist, and you're a great, you know, uh, dietitian, and you are making a huge difference in the world with the work that you're doing, you know, on the social media space. And so that's really what life is about, right? Is trying to make a difference and do something positive. Or at least that's the way that I felt. Um, you know, in the United States, if I wanted to make as much money as possible, I would have gone into banking. And that's, I have a lot of friends who have done that and they're taking great vacations. And a lot of times I'm working when they're on vacation, but the, the reality for me is it really started when I was a kid. Um, there was a 16 year old, you know, I mean, I guess boy, um, just a little guy in high school who, um, just felt compelled to do something where I could take people who had issues, concerns, problems, medical issues, and- do something that can make a difference in their life. And so it started from that sort of very basic place. And I have to tell you that it it took me in the U S it takes a very long time to get to the end of your training. It took me 16 years, four years of college, four years of medical school, four years as an internal medicine doctor, and four years as a gastro, as a gastroenterologist, as a specialist. And that's what it took for me to get to the end point. And That was a growing experience. I went from a 16-year-old boy into a grown man uh, with a family and children. And uh, along the way was finding myself. And as I was going through that finding process, what I realized is every single time that I deviated away from the original intent, if I ever got away from that original motivation, which is to try to help people, then it is when I lost job satisfaction or when I got frustrated with the work that I do Mm -hmm. and medicine is no matter what your role is in healthcare, we're taking care of sick people. And this is demanding. This is a demanding job, no matter what your role is. And you have to be there a hundred percent. And so for me, the way that I can be a hundred percent and give it everything I got is to continue to focus on that original intent. And what's cool for me is that that original intent is what motivated me to start my Instagram account in the first place. I felt compelled to share a story that I didn't think was out there, that I didn't see out there on the internet. Um, I didn't see the conversations around gut health to be really factually correct. Mm -hmm. I had concerns about that. And I felt like people deserved to have a reliable source that they could trust and go to to learn what the truth is. And so that's the place that I came from, but you know, in terms of being a GI doctor, a gastroenterologist. So I specialize for your listeners at home who um, maybe are learning about this a little bit. I specialize in all things related to digestion. So um, if you start at the lips and you go down through the esophagus stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, which we also call the colon, um, but also toss in there, the other abdominal organs, the liver, the pancreas, um, even the spleen, I guess. I'm the expert. I'm the expert on those particular things. Um, So when I met my wife, I was in my specialty training. And it's kind of embarrassing to admit that you're the guy that does colonoscopies.
0: Um,
1: So I I, I don't know that I was completely forthcoming with the fact that I'm a gastroenterologist. But the truth is that I love my job. And Mm -hmm. the reason why I chose this field was because It gives me a chance to do things, um, to take care of people from a medical perspective where I can, you know, really take a detailed history, find out what their problem is, and then create a plan, some sort of action plan, sometimes very complicated to try to get them better. But I also get to use my hands, um, which I really appreciate. I, I do procedures. I do an upper endoscopy. I do colonoscopy. I was doing them today. And when I do those things, I can I can make people feel better almost immediately many times. You know, if someone has trouble swallowing, um, they're worried that food is going to get stuck in their chest and I can bring them relief instantaneously. Or I can find a polyp that's on its way of tur- to turning into cancer and I can remove it. And then I sort of um, strut around the endoscopy unit, like like puff out my chest and kind of <laughs> think back because I just cured cancer. So those are the reasons. <laughs> those are the reasons that I chose to get into gastroenterology. How about you? What did, what, what motivated you to sort of pick GI as an as an initial field um, with dietetics?
0: Yeah, so I think I've always been interested in health and nutrition from a really young age. Um around about I think I was around about 19 or 20 years old, I went to Bali. As most Australians do, it's really close. We we love Bali, unfortunately as most Australians do, ended up with Bali belly and um basically got diagnosed with post-infective IBS and since then my stomach has has never been the same. Um and so I guess in a, my own motivation was to get to the bottom of my own symptoms, and whilst I was studying nutrition and dietetics, there wasn't a whole lot around gut health or how to work with gut health conditions, Um, even particularly what, six or seven years ago when I was going through uni, there wasn't a a huge, I guess, amount of evidence. We've really come a long way, even in the last five years, in terms of the evidence around gut health. And so I guess it was my own personal motivation to start with. And then it was just seeing all those confusing health messages online and seeing people promote different supplements and programs and just knowing that there wasn't any sort of real evidence to support that and just hearing stories of my clients wasting thousands of dollars seeing these, I guess, more unqualified health professionals and just thinking, I can do more. I can I can help these people um, to understand a little bit more about the gut so I guess it started from my own personal motivation and then it's just an area that I've just become I've just fallen in love with and I'm just obsessed with there's it, there's mm. so much to learn and it's constantly changing that it's just such an exciting area to be working in
1: it's totally exciting and you know you touched on a lot of important points which is that we have learned so much in such a short period of time and to be to be totally frank with you, that is one of the huge challenges in terms of implementing these studies. So to put into perspective over 35 years, there were a little bit over, uh, 3,500 studies that were done on gut health. Okay. That's over 35 years. So now that's, that's quite a few studies, 3,500 studies. That's a lot Mm -hmm. in the last, uh, five years, there have been 12,000 studies on, on something related to the microbiome. And so 80% of what we know about the microbiome or about gut health, we have learned in this compact five-year period of time. And so it's, it's overwhelming and most doctors are incapable of keeping up with it. And I just kind of obsessed over it. Um, by no means have I read all 12,000 of the studies, but I've, I've read, you know, at least hundreds, if not over a thousand of those studies. And, um, And I completely share your obsession over this. I I feel like this is a total game changer, a total game changer when it comes to health.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So many things I want to ask you right now, but I think I'll just bring it back to basics. And I guess the majority of my clients that I see in my dietitian gut health clinic would be for IBS. And I know that it's a large chunk of referrals um, that gastroenterologists would get. What would be the biggest um, referral source that you would say that you see in your clinic? Is it indeed for irritable bowel syndrome or is it for um, other types of conditions?
1: I think IBS, irritable bowel syndrome is probably the number one um, diagnosis that I see. And for the people who are listening at home, irritable bowel syndrome is a, is a condition that involves both abdominal pain and a change in bowel habits. It's a chronic change. So you'll have this, many of them will have this abdominal pain. Um, and then either they'll have diarrhea or constipation. It's one of the two. But one of the hallmarks of irritable bowel syndrome is that when you have that bowel movement, you actually experience relief. That's one of the key things. And you know, one of the frustrating things for patients, I'm sure you saw this in your clinic, um, is that People that have irritable bowel syndrome, it, it's, it's a syndrome. So there is no one single test that proves that you have irritable bowel syndrome. It's a combination of tests to basically prove that you don't have all the other stuff. And it's the pattern of symptoms that you have that in combination allow the doctor to say that you have this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like sometimes that's very frustrating for the patient. They wish they could just have a firm diagnosis. Um, but beyond IBS, I, I see a ton of acid reflux. I see a lot of um, uh, just straight diarrhea or constipation in the absence of irritable bowel syndrome, and I see a lot of bloating, gas, abdominal distension, that type of stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Um, Have you seen a significant, I guess, rise in referrals to your clinic over the last couple of years as we get more, I guess um, we have more knowledge around gut health. Do you feel like we're diagnosing patients with, with more conditions or you're getting more referrals through your clinics?
1: There is no lack of business in my field. (laughs) Um, You know, as someone who desperately wants to teach people how to get to the root of their problem, to really understand what gut health is and the microbiome and how we can manipulate it and try to make it better. I am not worried about putting out myself out of business. Um, (laughs) That's not going to happen. And so, yeah, there is no question. We are seeing a rise of digestive diseases. Um, on epidemic proportions, sometimes it's a little bit hard to measure that because you could argue that there is a bias sometimes in the studies. You know, for example, a detection bias where you know we're just more aware of these issues than we were, say, 20 years ago. But some things are indisputable, right? So let me give you an example: um, esophageal cancer. Esophageal cancer, esophageal adenocarcinoma, is caused by acid reflux. So in theory, the incidence of esophageal adenocarcinoma should correlate strongly with the um, number of people out there who have acid reflux. And what we've seen in the last, this is I mean, to me terrifying, in the last 40 years, we have seen a 700% increase in esophageal cancer in 40 years. So you go back to the 70s, and for every one case of esophageal cancer in the United States back in the 1970s, we are now seeing seven of these cases. And this is despite our efforts to try to prevent it. This is despite the availability of medications that we didn't have in the 1970s, like proton pump inhibitors. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a scary thing. And you know, you think about other digestive diseases, I should have mentioned these, by the way, Leanne, um, you know, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. So that's a big part of my practice too. And these these are what we would call inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. They are autoimmune. So that what, what that means is your immune system has become confused and actually goes on the attack. And it's trying to attack you, your own body. Your body decides, your immune system decides that you are the enemy and need to be removed and taken out. And then what you get is inflammation that, that results in, you know, basically damage to the colon, damage to the intestine. These conditions are clearly on the rise, dramatically, mm-hmm. dramatically. And I think that some of the most clear examples of the rise of inflammatory bowel disease come from the third world. So we we know that these are a problem in Australia and the United States and the UK. But what about a country like Brazil that was a third world country 40 years ago? and has industrialized and taken on many of the same lifestyle habits that we have in the Western world. What's going on with inflammatory bowel disease there? Well, what what you have seen is a condition, a, a country that has gone from a position of not really having any inflammatory bowel disease, doctors not really knowing how to take care of it because it didn't exist in their country to A period of time in the 90s with the industrialization of these countries, where I'm not exaggerating when I say this, and it even blows my mind as a doctor, there was a 10 to 15% increase per year, per year in the number of cases of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease in this country. And So all of a sudden you start seeing people showing up with these conditions in your clinic and you have no clue how to treat this complex condition. And so what do they do in the two thousands, the doctors from these countries start flying to the United States or to wherever their closest place is um, to try to learn more about how we treat these conditions because they've never seen it before. So there is no question, Leanne that, digestive diseases are on the rise but what i find to be interesting and compelling when we're talking about the gut is not just the digestive diseases that are on the rise mm. but also let's talk about the let's talk about the autoimmune diseases that are on the rise yeah. or the neurologic diseases that are on the rise or the hormonally motivated conditions that are on the rise And the way that the gut is actually connected to all of those things. And we can talk about that in a lot more detail in the next, you know, during this podcast.
0: Yeah, that would be wonderful. And even when you mention autoimmune diseases, I see a lot of clients, obviously, being the dietician for a newly diagnosed celiac disease. So, again, another autoimmune disease. And we just don't know really what what causes these autoimmune diseases, do we? I mean, I think we know that there's some sort of genetic predisposition and then something happens within that body and it sort of switches on that autoimmune response. Do you have any sort of thoughts or ideas around um, diet or environmental having an influence or an impact on some of these autoimmune diseases?
1: This is, you are, you are really nailing this issue. And there's some new studies. We're talking about these new studies that are coming out in the last five years. There are new studies coming out on this topic that I would love to share. So celiac disease is an autoimmune condition where your immune system attacks, again, you, your own body. And in this case, it attacks your intestine. And it's related to the exposure to a protein called gluten. So we've all heard of gluten. We have all consumed gluten if you live in the Western world. And you'll find gluten in three particular grains, wheat, barley, and rye. I mean, wheat is sort of the dominant one that you'll find in most of our food. So people that have celiac disease, when they consume gluten, their immune system goes on the attack and um, goes and attacks their intestine. And this is a dangerous thing because if they continue to do this, it causes not just uh, upset stomach, not just diarrhea or bloating, or even in some cases, constipation weight loss, um, not just symptoms, it can cause cancer. And the type of cancer that people develop is almost universally fatal. It's a T-cell lymphoma of the small bowel. By the time your doctor knows that you have it, it's almost always too late. And so we don't, I I will tell you, and I'm sure that you're exactly this way too. When it comes to a person who has celiac disease, I don't play games. Mm -hmm. There is no rule. There is no place for gluten at all. But the question that you're bringing up, which is a really good question, is why is there the explosion of celiac disease? More than a 500% increase in the last 50 years, 500%. Is it our genetics? No, our genetics don't shift in 50 years. As humans, our genetics do not shift in 50 years. What we do know is that there there is a gene that's actually very common among people of Caucasian descent. About one in three of us have the gene for celiac disease. So it's very common. It's not rare. And so the question that people have been wondering is why the 500% increase in the U.S., and I'm guessing it's probably about the same in Australia, about 1% of Americans now have celiac disease, but it's climbing. And I'm going to tell you right now, I am diagnosing it all the time, all the time, like Almost every week.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why the rise? Well, there is a researcher who I'm a big fan of. She's at McMaster in Ontario, Canada. and her name is Elena Verdu. And basically what she did through a series of eloquent studies is showed us that there are three criteria that you have to meet in order to have celiac disease. So the first thing is the gene. If you don't have the gene, if you if you're one of the people who doesn't have it, lucky you, you cannot have celiac disease. It's not possible but a lot of us do have the gene. I may, I may have the gene, honestly, one out of three. Number two, you need to be exposed to gluten. Well, we all are. If you live in the Western world, you have been exposed to gluten. So what is the key thing? And you actually touched on this. What is flipping the switch? You described that perfectly. What is flipping the switch to turn on the gene? And the answer to that question is the gut microbiome. Damage to the gut microbiome which we call dysbiosis. Okay, you will hear people out there use the expression leaky gut. We're kind of talking about the same thing. It's not exactly the same, but we're kind of talking about the same thing. When someone says leaky gut and I say dysbiosis, we're basically talking about the same thing. Damage to the gut microbiome, a loss of balance, a loss of harmony, which we would call dysbiosis, is a required part of activating the gene for celiac disease, and that is why 97% of the people who have celiac disease, I'm sorry, 97% of the people who have the gene will not develop celiac disease, only 3%. But that 3%, by definition, have dysbiosis or damage to their gut microbiome, which flips the gene, turns on the condition, and now you have it for the rest of your life, and you can't take it back. That's impossible. And we have realized that this is the pathogenesis. This is the way that you develop many different conditions, many different autoimmune conditions. And it's a very interesting and relevant conversation because I don't know uh, if if you recall this, but in the year 2000, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. A lot of people overseas are a Bill Clinton fan. (laughs) And, And for the first time, there were a team of scientists from around the world that cracked the human genetic code. Okay, so they completed the study of the human genetic code. It was called the Human Genome Project. It was massive. And they, they honestly thought that they had found the cure for cancer. They honestly thought that it was like, we're going to live to be 150 years old, and there's not going to be any disease. Cancer still exists. We're not going to live to be 150 years old. The returns on what they found have been disappointing. Flat out, they have been disappointing, and the reason why is that 99% of your genes, both you and me, 99% of our genes do not come from human cells. 99% of your genetic code comes from your microbiome, microbes, bacteria, fungi, archaea. This makes up 99% of your genetic code, and that's a relevant relevant thing that has control over the expression of our genes and so um, it just is a demonstration of the power of the microbiome that you can't just look at your genetics you have to count the microbes too you have to think about these microbes when we consider the development of disease at all times
0: Wow, that's that's such a just a mind blowing fact. And I guess (laughs) when people sort of say, you know, what can I do to sort of heal my, you know, autoimmune condition, it's sort of that unfortunate thing where once you've got that, you you know there's a lot you can do but there's nothing that you can do to reverse that or or to um, you know cure that as such that you mentioned. But I think what's really important is to realise that you can I guess even protect yourself from some of these autoimmune conditions by taking care of your gut microbiome because a lot of my patients I sort of I used to love asking them the question once they got diagnosed with celiac, did you have a change in your life circumstance and ninety nine point nine percent of them. Could identify a change in their life circumstances before their diagnosis of um, of celiac disease, where you could maybe assume that that was sort of a change in their gut microbiome. A lot of them had, um, you know, graduated from school and started university life or college life, or a lot of them had been travelling overseas, where their gut had been playing up quite a lot. Come back home and ended up with a diagnosis of of celiac disease. So thinking about um, some of the research that you've said around that and the changes in the gut microbiome, it's fascinating to think that. Um, were they perhaps eating, you know, a lot differently, um, compared to being at home and then going into college or from, um, being in a stable routine at home and then traveling around the world for a couple of months, may that have had some sort of influence on their gut microbiome as well?
1: 100%, uh, 100%. That's completely relevant. And there are studies that show where they actually, um, took a population of people from, uh, I believe it was from Indonesia so more closer to your neck of the woods. And they followed them as they moved to the United States. And what they found is that very, very quickly in less than a year, there were dramatic changes that we would characterize as negative changes, things that you don't want. There were dramatic changes to the gut microbiome in less than a year in this population that emigrated to the United States and sort of changed their lifestyle and adapted more uh, you know, culturally Western practices. And you know, the, the the thing is that we have this life, which we accept as the normal life in Australia, in the US, in the UK, or in Europe, wherever. And we accept this and we say, okay, this is normal, right? Is this normal? Like, go back 150 years. Was that the way that people lived? No, what we have done is we have attached ourselves to certain bases, certain sort of lifestyle practices that were a small part of life 150 years ago. And now it's our entire life. And we have normalized abnormal. We have, we have, we do things that are completely um, abnormal by human evolutionary standards and we're not built for it. And it has all of these things, whether it be your diet, the way you sleep, the way you exercise, the way you move, the way you connect with other humans, the way you connect with nature, the amount of time you spend outside, all of these things have an influence to a varying degree on the makeup of your gut microbiome. And here we are, and we see the emergence of these 21st century diseases that are being tied back to damage to the the microbiome. And you start to understand that it's not our genes that are changing. It's our environment that's changing and it's the environment that's having an impact on a microbiome. And that is, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's everything. It's not everything, but this is a huge part of what we see happening around the world.
0: And I love so much that you touched on that because a lot of people with, um, I guess, gut health issues approach me and they sort of say, what can I do to almost improve my gut health? And I sort of look at them and I sort of say, are you taking into consideration you know, your lifestyle as a whole, are you looking into, you know, stress management and sleep management, not just your diet or, um, or your eating, you know, all of that has an impact on your gut microbiome, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. hundred percent. Yes. Um, you know, you, you think about, uh, what we sort of accept as our life, which is fast paced. Um, like when you go to eat, you sit down for literally 10 minutes, you inhale your food, scarf it down, you barely chew, you don't talk to someone when you're eating that meal. You're looking at your phone and flipping through your social media. I'm as guilty of it as anyone. Um, but you know that's the life that we have created, where you know it's like you're you're sitting down for 10 minutes, you fail your food, you don't have time to eat something that is fibrous and requires you to actually chew. You then you move on to the next thing. You go 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 go. You stress 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 stress. You don't make any time for yourself to chill out. don't make any time to read a book you don't make any time to connect to another human being if you connect to a human being it's through skype (laughs) or facetime and you know this um let me be honest i don't love social media which is really weird because i have a big social media account not nearly as big as yours but it's a big social media account and it makes me feel very isolated sometimes. And I think that the reason why is, and and truly, I kind of, kind of depressed and I have to put it down and take a break and play with my kids and go hug my wife and all those kinds of great things, um, to get back on track. And I think the reason why is like, I'm looking at you right now and we're having this conversation, but I would feel totally different if we were sitting in the same room talking to each other. And I don't know why that is. I wonder sometimes if it's our microbes. It's very interesting. There are like that we there are studies that show that we actually emit almost like an aura of microbes around us, that we shed literally a million particles per hour as we go around. Mm-hmm. That the people that we habitate with, that you know, our family, for example, that we live with or your roommate when you're in college. That we start to share the same microbiome just by living together.
0: Wow!
1: And so there's this social element to the microbiome where we share with each other. And I, I'm trying to understand why it feels different to me. I don't know if you feel this way. Maybe you could comment on this in a second. But I'm trying to understand why it feels different to me. That I can look at you in the eye right here through through Zoom. And it doesn't feel the same to me as if you and I were sitting in a room talking to each other.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that just that connection to family and um, having a sense of purpose, Um, there's been a lot of research and studies to show that even that can have an impact on our gut microbiome. I mean – Probably the book that really jumps to my mind is The Blue Zones. Um, have you Have you read that book? Are you a fan of that I'm book? I'm
1: obsessed with that book. I am obsessed with that book.
0: And how he talks about um, just having that connection and that sense of purpose, along with a really great um, healthy diet as well, is, is, is just key to living just a lifelong healthy lifestyle, irrespective of gut health. Just living a great healthy life comes back to the sense of purpose, family values, connection, human human-to-human human connection, and we don't get that over social media. You know, I could say that I have so many friends over social media, but I couldn't tell you their middle name. I couldn't tell you what their coffee order is, and I couldn't tell you um, what the name is of, I don't know, their, their favourite coffee shop or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like we, no. we have these connections, but it's, it's nothing like what our great-grandparents used to have as an example. And so yep. I think that with social media, yes, it's brought us so many wonderful things, but at the same time, it's, it's very confusing. It's very noisy. It's, it's sort of removed us from having to deal with that human-to-human element, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
1: It makes 100% sense. And you know, I'll just say off the top, and I kind of touched on this in the very beginning, that I love that I can connect with you from around the world. I think that's great. There's a guy in your country, you, you may actually know him, named Simon Hill from Plant Proof. Yeah. And he's become a really, really good friend of mine. And it's, it, it is amazing to me that social media brought me this friendship that means a lot to me, you know, cause I, I really do consider him to be one of my best friends. But so I love all that. I think it's really cool, but I am with you. I'm with you hundred percent that social media does take us away from real human connection and, um, the best things in life are free and it's, it's incredibly simple and we are social creatures. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I can explain this by just looking at the microbiome necessarily, but just what, what is the worst way to hurt a human being or to torture a human being? It's isolation. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter who you are. If you put a person into isolation, that is that is the worst thing that you can do to them, and that that by itself I think speaks volumes to the importance of human connection. And you know I don't know I I feel um, I feel blessed on a daily basis. I think about the connection that I have with my family and my kids, and and I I, I really try my best to not allow the craziness of social media. And the things that I'm doing on the side, like writing a book and this and that, building you know, all of these little side projects that I love and I love sharing with people. I love podcasting, but I I really, really try hard to make sure that I maintain that connection to my kids and my wife and not let these things get in the way of that because they very easily could.
0: They could. And it it can have such an impact on our mood. And I'm sure that a lot of the statistics in Australia are very similar to those in America. And I'm sure that... um, I guess some mental health conditions are on the rise in America as well, particularly things like depression and anxiety in Australia, which is linked to our gut health. So I'm wondering, Dr. B, if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about um, just how our gut health may impact our mood, even from the perspective that the majority of our serotonin is made in our gut. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. We'll start right there 90%. So serotonin, which is the happy hormone, which regulates your mood, your energy levels. Um, if I want to treat someone for depression, I will give them a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is a way to boost serotonin levels within their body. Mm-hmm. And 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Um, now, let me say this, full disclosure, that serotonin that's produced in the gut, it, it doesn't uh, necessarily cross the blood-brain barrier, um, but there are there are signaling molecules that are basically serotonin precursors that are produced in the gut that do. So conceptually we're talking about the same thing. I'm just kind of clarifying that the formality that it's not necessarily that serotonin, but it's part of the package. It's part of the package. It's the serotonin precursors. It's also 30, there are 30 neurotransmitters that are produced in your gut. Um, so this is an organ that's producing, you know, neurotransmitters on par with your brain. And you think about also the number of nerves that exist. The most nerves that exist are in your brain, but the second most nerves that exist are actually in your gut. And it's a shocking number, five times the amount that you would find in your spinal cord. So way more nerves in your gut than you have in your spinal cord. And Second by second, like literally right now, each one of us here having this conversation or listening at home, those nerves, millions of them are sensing Mm -hmm. and collecting information and the information that they collect gets sent through predominantly the vagus nerve, which is the main phone line. When we talk Mm -hmm. about the brain gut connection, it's the vagus nerve. That is the phone line that communicates between your gut and your brain. And so all of this, all of the, all this entire sensory element that we have is communicated back to the brain, and the brain has an input and can communicate back to our gut, and it can go back and forth, and it's a two way street that's happening constantly. Mm-hmm. And so you can manipulate the gut, and you can have an effect on someone's mood, and it's very clear. There are, for example, probiotics that can be given to actually treat depression and anxiety. And it's, it's fascinating because we come back to these you know, um, indicators that we are causing damage to our gut. There's you know, so much out there to support the fact that our modern lifestyle is causing damage to our gut. And you touched on it, the epidemic of anxiety and depression that exists, that I think this is a powerful part of that story. Maybe not the whole story, but this is a powerful part of that story. And I I see people with irritable bowel syndrome, you know, you take care of these patients too. If you go back, not that long ago, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was widely accepted among the medical community that these people who have irritable bowel syndrome. So first of all, let me say there's huge overlap with anxiety and depression. People with IBS, it's extremely common to have anxiety and depression. And it was widely accepted by the medical community 10 or 15 years ago that, oh, well, you know, these people are neurotic. And because they're so neurotic and anxious and depressed, they are actually worrying themselves sick. It's, that's so not accurate. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's entirely dismissive of the patient and their individual struggle. And I, and I regret that. I regret that that was the tone that was out there because the truth is what we now understand is that if you damage the gut microbiome dysbiosis, you know, for example, you went to Bali and you had a, you had a bug (laughs) and you got, you got the Bali, the Bali belly and that bug causes damage to the microbiome. This damage to the microbiome dysbiosis, which we talked about with celiac disease also, has an effect on serotonin levels, serotonin within the gut, the, the um, production of neurotransmitters, the production of serotonin precursors. And the reason why this is relevant is that that right there will affect your mood. That right there will make you anxious. And that right there will also affect both motility so you'll have a change in your gut motility if your motility starts getting too fast you get diarrhea and if your motility is too slow as a result of the change in motility you get constipation and the other thing that it affects is the sensitivity of your gut yes it affects because these nerves that are there lining carpeting your gut by the millions more than any organ in the body except for your brain These nerves are constantly sensing and they can get messed up just like any other organ, like your gallbladder can. And it affects the sensitivity of these nerves and you get what we call visceral hypersensitivity. And what I just described to you, that starts with damage to the gut microbiome, dysbiosis, and works through this pathway that involves the brain gut and involves these neurotransmitters, involves serotonin, It affects motility, affects visceral hypersensitivity, affects mood. That's irritable bowel syndrome. That's what it was. It was a cerebral bowel syndrome from the very beginning. We just didn't understand it. And now we can pull it all together into one place and get that this is the way that it works. And what's fascinating is that you can treat someone, you can treat someone with a medication that typically is used to treat depression and use it at a very, very low dose um, like I'm talking that I will write a prescription for the lowest dose that the pharmaceutical company makes, and it will tell my patient to cut it in half. And that kind of dose is all that is necessary to correct the motility, correct the visceral hypersensitivity, and to dramatically improve irritable bowel syndrome. And when you do that and you bring some relief to these people and they start to make some lifestyle changes. All of a sudden, their mood is better, anxiety washes away, and they're like a new person. And you just, that's what it's all about, trying to help the people and do something like that.
0: That's so fascinating because I think a lot of um, clients with irritable bowel syndrome get caught in this this cycle that where your symptoms are terrible, it's, uh, sometimes they're so bad that you don't want to leave the house. You know, like if you're constantly running to the bathroom, you don't know where the next bathroom is going to be. You're not going to leave the house. That's going to have an impact on your mood when you've got a low mood, you're not going to be really, you know, in a great place to whip up a huge healthy meal. You're just going to eat whatever's quick and convenient. And typically it's not the best um, source of food to feed, you know, your great healthy gut microbiome. So you're stuck in this cycle where it's really, really hard to break out of um, for a lot of clients because it, it it all comes back to their mood and a lot of circumstances. You're not super highly motivated to do things when you're struggling to leave the house and you've got these terrible symptoms and it feels like every food that you eat kind of makes those symptoms worse. So a lot of people just end up restricting, restricting, restricting. And by the time they get into my clinic, they're basically eating nothing. So let's sort of talk about that, um, I guess, even irritable bowel syndrome or gut health symptoms from a dietary perspective. Um, And I know that an abundance of of plants is one of the best things that we can do uh, for our gut microbiome.
1: Yeah, well, let's start with that statement and then let's backtrack to talk a little bit more about food sensitivities because I think you started to touch on some issues that I think are really important to people understanding What's going on with their diet and why they feel a certain way. So, first of all, um, food. When, when we're talking about food and your gut, you we we know that um, food may be the number one determinant of the makeup of your gut microbiome. And I want to start by citing a study from Nature, which is the top scientific journal in the world 2014 two particular authors that i'm a big fan of lawrence david and peter turnbaugh these are young guys who are changing changing our understanding of human biology and what they did was very very simple and by the way let me say like these guys they are not trying to prove a point they don't care you know um what diet you think is the right diet or the best diet. They are literally trying to understand human biology. Mm -hmm. And so they're setting up experiments with that intent. And so what they did is they took a group of people, it was a small group of people, only 10, and they gave them two completely polar opposite diets that they ate for five days. And during those five days, they monitored their microbiome on a daily basis before they started. And with each day, they monitored the microbiome. And the two polar opposite diets are conceptually very simple to understand. One was a completely plant-based diet, 100%, no animal products. It was whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, um, legumes. And the other diet was a completely animal product-based diet. So, this was meat, dairy, cheese, eggs. Um, and so, the same people, five days of the plant based diet, then a washout period, and then five days of the animal product diet. And what you see is that literally in less than 24 hours, there are dramatic changes in the microbiome. Wow. So, that that shows us the power right there by itself that your diet has. If you change your diet, you will change your microbiome. Um, it allows us to understand that you can determine what someone's microbiome may look like based upon the food that they eat. Not always the same. Like, it, we all are going to be unique. Each one of us has our own unique microbiome. Like, your microbiome is as unique as a fingerprint for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we're all going to basically have an imprint on our microbiome from the food choices that we make. And this is really critically important. And the other thing that they found in this study is that when they, when they consumed, there were really differences in sort of what we saw the makeup of the microbiome was with these two totally different diets. So with the animal product diet, it was a lot more inflammatory type bacteria they saw reduced levels of what we call short-chain fatty acids, which are my favorite thing in nutrition. I want to talk about them more in a second. Mm-hmm. And they saw the emergence of certain bacteria, specifically this one bacteria that's called bibophilia wadsworthia that has been associated with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so you saw a series of changes, and there's more details that you can look at in the study if anyone at home wants to look at it. Again, it's Nature 2014, and the lead author is, is – is, First name is Lawrence, last name is David. With the plant-based diet, what you see is you see the emerge, emergence of these bacteria that help us to process and digest our fiber. And people don't realize that fiber is not in the mouth and out the other end. Fiber is actually metabolized by our gut microbes. Fiber is food. Fiber is food for your microbes. We can't process it by ourselves. That is not possible. The human body is not designed to process fiber. The reason why is because we have no clue how many types of fiber are out there. There could be millions of different types. So we need an adaptable way to do this. And what we have done is outsourced this to the microbes that have been a part of being a human being since the very beginning. Every single moment in human history has involved our microbial friends. They've always been there with us. So in this study, when they consumed a plant-based diet, they see the emergence. You see a change that adapts to take care of a plant-based diet. And the microbes that show up are really good at processing and digesting fiber to release these short-chain fatty acids, my obsession. I literally, by the way, this is an entire chapter in my book that that I just wrote. And so short-chain fatty acids, acetate, propionate, butyrate they have effects right there in the gut. They, they correct leaky gut. They feed healthy cells within the colon. They prevent colon cancer. They communicate to the immune system. Um, we haven't touched on this yet, but 70% of your immune system lives in your gut. They lower your cholesterol. They prevent type 2 diabetes. They can travel throughout literally the entire body. They can even cross the blood-brain barrier. We know the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, um, which is the formation of amyloid plaques in the brain. That's the way that that Alzheimer's develops. We know that there's an epidemic of Alzheimer's disease, and the pharmaceutical industry would love to find some sort of way to reverse or prevent amyloid plaques. Butyrate, butyrate, one of the short-chain fatty acids, prevents the formation of amyloid plaques you just have to eat you just have to eat a salad that's all you have to do so it's this study i think was a powerful study and the main takeaway is that our diet helps us to form our microbiome and that our microbiome will adapt to accommodate our diet and help us to process and digest whatever it is we eat so what is the main predictor of a healthy gut you turn to a different study Um, And I'm a huge fan of this. And the the author, his name is Rob Knight. He's at the University of California, San Diego. He's actually from New Zealand. And he has built the largest international study of more than 11,000 people from around the world, more than 40 countries who have filled out a survey and have submitted a stool specimen so that they could analyze the microbiome and they can correlate it with lifestyle. And Rob Knight put this all, I have no clue what Rob Knight eats, by the way, and I don't think think he cares. He's just trying to do good science. He's just trying to answer real questions. And because you don't get to this level and have an agenda, you get to this level by doing good work. And so Rob Knight put it all into an equation and asked the simple question, what in my my database, the largest database available in the world, more than 11,000 patients, what is the number one predictor of a healthy gut? And the answer was very clear it popped right out. The diversity of plants in your diet. The more different types of plants that you eat, the more that you will support diversity within your microbiome. When you have diversity within your microbiome, that is a measure of health. And that basically indicates that you have the types of microbes that you need to be able to get the job done. So you want more different species and that's what you get when you eat a diversity of plants. So just to turn real quick towards food sensitivity, um, these microbes that I'm alluding to play a critical role in the processing and digesting of our food. Mm -hmm. So yes, the, the human body does produce amylase to break down simple sugars or lipase to help us to break down our, our, our fats. Or uh, we have proteinases to break down our proteins. So yes, we do have digestive enzymes. A lot of them produced by our pancreas or by our salivary salivary glands. But what we don't have is the right enzymes to break down complex carbohydrates, which is what you find in plant foods. And these are health-promoting foods. Again, this is where you get short-chain fatty acids from. Mm -hmm. But we only have 17 of this type of enzyme called glycoside hydrolase to break down complex carbohydrates. 17 is a pathetic number. (laughs) There are microbes with 15 times that number of those enzymes. A microbe, a single cellular organism could have 15 times more enzymes than us big, powerful, strong humans. And there have been estimates that our microbes may contain upwards of 60,000 different types of these enzymes. And the point, Leanne, is that we are now starting to understand that food sensitivity and the reason why people struggle with fiber, a complex carbohydrate, Mm -hmm. or FODMAPs, which we can talk about in more detail in a moment, the reason why people are struggling with these is because their microbiome is not adapted and built. And it's particularly noticed in people that have had damage to their microbiome. And have dysbiosis. So these people who have irritable bowel syndrome or some other dysbiosis involved condition are the ones who need these short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate. they're the ones who need those the most. But the paradox is that they're also the ones that are going to struggle the most to consume fiber.
0: Yes. And I can I can speak from direct experience that I almost look like I'm six months pregnant when I try and eat any sort of like bean or legume or lentil or anything like that. So, but I sort of continue to push through and do that because I know how healthy and how great it is for my gut microbiome. So do you have any, I guess suggestions for people who do particularly feel, um, as we mentioned that um, visceral hypersensitivity, their gut, Um, just feels a lot more um, sensitively than what other people do. Like most people do get a little bit of bloating from beans, but some people, um, you know, it affects them uh, quite tremendously. So do you have any recommendations around if somebody is particularly sensitive to these types of fibers, um, lots of different plants and lentils and that sort of thing, how they may incorporate them or just start very slow or any sort of tips for our listeners?
1: Yeah. So to me, it's about having the right approach. Um, because each one of us is going to be unique and different. We are all going to have strengths and weaknesses within our gut. We're all going to have certain foods that we are more or less capable of processing and digesting. And part of the process is getting to the understanding of knowing what those foods are for each one of us individually. So it's not going to be beans for everyone, right? It's, it may be beans for you. It may be grains for me. Um, it's, so it's different things for each individual person. But I would encourage people to start thinking about the gut as a muscle, right? So as a a fitness dietitian, you can appreciate that if I stop working out or let's pretend that I break my arm and my arm goes into a cast, all right, and I could be in great shape. Like I could be at the gym all the time. I could be able to lift huge amounts of weight. And you put my arm into a cast and it gets weak and it atrophies because I have not been using it. And then you remove that cast three months later and I want to go back to the gym and I got this one side that's a Popeye arm and it's like huge. <laughs> I got this the one that's scrawny and broken because it hasn't been used. So what do you do? Do you go to the gym and do you take the same weight in both arms and try to lift it? No, that's how you hurt yourself. So what you do is you go to the gym And you choose the right amount of weight. The right amount of weight is the amount that you can challenge yourself, but not challenge yourself to the point that you hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. And the gut is conceptually the same. If you think of food groups in the same way that you would think about a muscle group when you exercise, if you think about legumes as a food group or grains as a food group or onions and garlic as a food group, then it sort of empowers you to start to understand that you're going to have strengths and weaknesses. Some of those food groups you'll do well with, and you can push yourself. Some of those food groups you're going to struggle with. And when you struggle with it, it just means that you need to moderate your portion size when it comes to that. And you need to find that amount of weight that's enough to push yourself without hurting yourself. And that's conceptually what it's all about. Now, I will say this. It's not always quite as easy as I just made it sound. Obviously, there's a role for working with a health professional, particularly if you have severe irritable bowel syndrome. I wouldn't recommend anyone with severe disease to just listen to our podcast and then try to treat themselves without help. Um, if you have underlying constipation, which is much more common than people realize,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even believe it or not, present with diarrhea. You can have something called overflow, overflow diarrhea where you have a column of stool that's stuck. I know that you've seen this before in clinics. And you have a column of stool that's stuck and nothing can get through, but the liquid can sneak through the cracks and the crevices and come down to the bottom and come out as diarrhea. It's very confusing because you are actually having diarrhea, but the cause of your diarrhea, believe it or not, is constipation. And the treatment is to treat constipation. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's surprising how powerful constipation can be in terms of affecting people's ability to process process and digest their food. And so in my in my clinical practice, I'm always looking for it. Bloating and gas, the number one cause of bloating and gas is constipation. And so if someone has a big issue with that, I want to make sure that they're not constipated and get that off the table because you have to be moving your bowels and mobilizing your food before you start to push yourself from a dietary perspective, particularly when it comes to fiber and FODMAPs. But the bottom line, with all that said, is you need to think about it as exercising your gut. And the safest approach when you exercise your gut is to start low and go slow when it comes to fiber and FODMAPs. And that's, that's my general approach. How do, you, how do you approach it with your patients?
0: Yeah, I 100% do the same thing. I think that a lot of people um, sort of do these exclusion diets and they find the the particular nutrients or groups of foods that uh, elicit more symptoms in them and they just cut them out because cutting them out makes them feel good. But I think that they forget over the long term, you can actually be harming your gut microbiome. And I think the FODMAP diet is something that I see all of the time that people, they come to me and they just say, oh, can you cater for a low FODMAP diet? Or, you know, I had a birthday party a couple of weeks ago and I said, oh, let me know if anybody's got any, um, you know, diet preferences because I was catering my party and um, a lot of people wrote um, in a couple of people and said, oh, I need a low FODMAP diet. And these were friends of mine. I didn't even realize that they had gut health issues. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize this was a thing for you. And you know they'd read about it online and they were trying it and they're like, yeah, I feel pretty good following it. And it turned out that they had a few symptoms, but they just purely weren't eating a good healthy diet to begin with. And then they thought that this diet was something that they should follow long-term. And I like to say to my clients that following a, long, a low FODMAP diet long-term can actually be more harmful than good. Um, do you feel that same way? Because you're cutting out so many of these beneficial prebiotics, which are, again, just that fuel for um you know our short-term fatty acids that we were talking about before. They're so beneficial for our gut microbiome.
1: Yeah, you really haven't left much for me to add there because you basically just nailed it, but... Um, FODMAPs, just for the people listening at home, FODMAPs, it's an acronym that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, predominantly found in plant foods, but not exclusively. For example, lactose. I mean, there's a lot of people who are lactose intolerant, right? And lactose, which is a sugar, is uh, an example of a FODMAP, and you obviously find lactose in dairy. So that's one example of a FODMAP. You also find fructans. Fructans are commonly found in grains like wheat, barley, rye, Um, or you also find fructans in the aromatics like onions and garlic. So I guess the bottom line is when you think about the low FODMAP diet, you are 100% correct that to um, perpetually restrict yourself in terms of the consumption of FODMAPs is actually to cause damage to the microbiome. And we have studies to back that up 100%. And the reason why, as you said, is that FODMAPs are prebiotic foods. They feed and nourish the healthy bacteria. They release short-chain fatty acids. It goes back to this concept that the paradox is, once again, the person who needs these foods the most is the one who struggles the most to consume them. And if you look at the original low FODMAP diet as it was intended, not the way that it's been distorted on the internet. But if you look at the original low map diet as it was intended, it was actually developed in your country at Monash University. And it was always meant to be a temporary restriction mm-hmm. followed by a systematic reintroduction where you go class by class by class. And it gets a little bit complicated because you have to know exactly what foods you can and cannot eat during that reintroduction. And this is the reason why if people want to do the low map diet, They should do the real diet, but they should do it with a qualified health professional. Don't try to do this by yourself. And definitely, definitely do not go and just go low FODMAP permanently where you permanently restrict because that's how you damage your microbiome. And, you know, no matter uh, broadening out beyond just the low FODMAP diet, it's the general trend um, starting in the early 2000s when Warren Cordain published the Paleo Code. Um, and paleo kind of came into the mainstream. It's been the general trend to dot, to restrict. So first it was first it was legumes, beans, and then it became then it became gluten, and then it was all grains. Restrict all grains, not just gluten. And then it was okay, nightshades. We have to restrict those too. And now we hear about lectins and phytates. And you know the problem is that you can. I could take literally any food, any food, the healthiest or the least healthy food on the planet, and I could find something if we boil it down to individual parts. I could find something good and I could find something bad in every single food. But that's not the way that we eat. We eat whole foods. We eat real food. We don't eat parts. And when we study things, we really need to look at the effect that a whole food has on the body. And I think it's an important concept that people need to understand that when we eliminate entire categories of food, we miss out on all the nutrients that come with that. And that is problematic. And one of the places that you see that really manifest is in the gut microbiome. When you narrow the diversity in your diet, you will narrow the diversity within your gut microbiome. And you heard me say previously that the diversity within your microbiome more is a sign of health, less puts you at risk for disease and dysbiosis. So the bottom line is we want to broaden out. We want food in abundance. We don't want restriction. We want all of them and more. We want all the different plant foods. It's just it's gonna look different for each one of us. There's not gonna be one size fits all that we need to each find how that looks for each one of us, how much of each particular thing you don't need to eat the exact same way that I eat. I don't want you to, I want you to eat the way that fits for you, but I want you to work on plant-based diversity in that process.
0: A hundred percent. And there's so many amazing key take home messages and what you just said for our listeners. But I think, um, The bottom line is for a lot of people with gut health issues is that we're fearful of these symptoms and rightly so, because they can have a huge impact on our quality of life. But I think the biggest thing to remember is to think about the long term, the longer that you restrict these foods and the less diversity that you have in your diet, potentially the worse your symptoms are going to be long term. So if you're somebody and you're listening at home, or in the car, or wherever you're listening, um, I guess diversity is the biggest thing. So if you have cut things out and you do find that you are particularly sensitive to things, the best things that you can do, as Dr. B mentioned, is just slowly, slowly, incrementally increase very small amounts of them in your diet to have as much diversity as possible. Because the FODMAPS diet, it's so... It's so topical on social media at the moment and everybody seems to be doing it, but I think the thing that a lot of us forget is that these aren't bad or harmful foods. These are some of the healthiest foods that we could possibly eat for our gut microbiome and the whole basis of the diet is cutting them all out. It just doesn't make sense. Um, so I think that's some wonderful take-home messages, Dr. B. I'd love to touch on um, women's health and gut health with you if um, if you have any sort of ideas or just to give us a general... Um, any sort of feelings around women's health and gut health at all that you have?
1: There, so it's, it's interesting. There is, um, you know, we talk about the brain-gut connection. Well, there also is a connection between our gut and our hormones. And if you look at the gut, it becomes very, very clear that this is actually a powerful endocrine organ. Um, and it, it, so, women's health is a part of the story, but it also affects many other different hormones beyond just women's health. But let's let's zero in on women's health-related issues for a moment in a little more detail. Um, believe it or not, the gut actually plays a powerful role in the regulation of estrogen throughout the body. So, there's a particular enzyme that is produced by gut microbes called beta-glucuronidase. And beta glucuronidase activates estrogen and helps to regulate the levels within the body. And what's interesting is there are a number of different conditions that have been associated with alterations to estrogen levels. An example of which is endometriosis. And what's fascinating is that you see this, you see, okay, the gut plays a role in estrogen, endometriosis associated with an excess of estrogen does the gut relate to directly to endometriosis? And the answer is that at least in animal model studies, there is evidence that in endometriosis, there is damage to the gut microbiome, dysbiosis. So there's another condition where the gut, which is not necessarily, you know, directly related to female parts, but there's a communication process that exists that's very relevant to the regulation of estrogen levels. But another example that involves estrogen is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. And in PCOS, your estrogen levels may be diminished or they actually could be normal. The key in PCOS is also an increase in androgen levels. Um, Androgen meaning male hormones. And what's interesting is that we've also discovered that there is a microbe called clostridium syndens. And clostridium syndins, which will be found in the gut in varying proportions, can produce androgens. So now we have discovered that this balance between male hormones and female hormones that is relevant to every single one of us, whether you're a guy or you're a girl, it actually is influenced by your gut microbes. And PCOS, again, is another example where there is evidence of damage to the gut microbiome dysbiosis associated with PCOS. So when we talk about women's health issues, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to drill down, but we see these different examples, endometriosis, PCOS, even breast cancer, um, all have been associated with uh, alterations to the gut microbiome. And it becomes very clear that this isn't the whole story when it comes to women's health, but this is definitely a part of the story. And it's something that we should be paying attention to. And I think this is one of the take-home points is no matter who you are, whether you're sick or you're healthy, no matter who you are, this is important. And you should be paying attention to your gut health because this is how you it's not necessarily a silver bullet, but this is how you prevent disease. This is how you can potentially treat or control to the best of your ability is by starting in this place, start by taking care of your gut
0: amazing. And I love that quote. I think it goes something like, um, health begins in your gut. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. sure that you're, you're a huge believer of that as well. I mean, we've touched so much on how diet can influence so many different conditions. Um, let's bring it back to, we were talking a little bit about that gut brain excess. I like to call it the, the super highway, the, that vagus nerve is that link between our gut and our brain. And it, it has so many, um, I guess, connections and sends messages back and forth. How much does stress and sleep have an impact on that? Because I feel like so many people People would do everything that they can to manage their their eating and their nutrition. But we sort of wear lack of sleep like this badge of honor. You know, in 2019, the busier you are, it seems like, you know, we wear it like this badge of honor, like it's a great thing to be working 80 hours a week and to not be managing our stress levels. You know, people say, oh, you should meditate and we just laugh it off. How important is proper sleep and managing our stress levels? How important are they to our gut health, Dr. B.?
1: Both of those things are are wildly underrated, wildly underrated because that is low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let me give you an example. I'll start with sleep. Um, this is so simple, you know. This is so simple. We just have to, to work the way that Mother Nature is asking us to work, which is that when the sun goes down, our body starts to release melatonin. And the problem is that we can really disrupt that if we are in front of the television screen, in front of the um, if we are if we have a tablet or our phone right in front of our face, the bright light can really disrupt the release of melatonin, which is necessary as we start to dial down, wind down. When the sun goes down and it gets dark outside, our body is preparing for rest, so it's best for us to start to prepare for rest as well. This is part of the reason why when you go to bed early, it can make a huge difference in the way that you feel. So timing of when you go to bed is relevant. It's not just how many hours you sleep. It's tapping into your circadian biology, your natural biorhythm, and recognizing that that our body is designed for us to wind down when the sun goes down and to wind up when the sun comes up by exposure to bright light. So, And what we do know is that people who are sleep-deprived have clear cut changes in their gut microbiome. And what's interesting is those changes, which are inflammatory type changes, strongly resemble a person who has obesity. And if you think about the way that you eat, when you are fatigued, you are far more prone to um, consuming processed foods and to overeating. And frankly, poor dietary, poor dietary choices. And it has the appearance that the microbiome is a driving influence behind that. So in terms of healing our gut, it's low hanging fruit, go to bed early and get eight hours of sleep. There are people who claim they can sleep four hours. And it's like you said, it's like a badge of honor. It's not cool. It's not, it's not that cool. Like, like, it's it's a lot cooler to be well-rested and take care of your body the way that um, nature intended it. And and when it comes to stress levels, it's clear-cut as well. Now, it's it's a little bit more difficult. Some of the studies haven't been done, and there's more data that we need to get. But let me just give you one example, just one example of study that I think is relevant. So we're talking about this low FODMAP diet, and people are very excited and enthusiastic about the, the possibility that a low FODMAP diet can be good for their irritable bowel syndrome. And properly applied, it can definitely help their irritable bowel syndrome. Guess what else? Guess what else can help their irritable bowel syndrome? Yoga. Yoga, which includes exercise and a meditative element. Um, my favorite part is the shavasana at the end where you get to just kind of chill and hopefully it's a nice quiet room or a nice sort of meditative music. Um they found that yoga was just as effective as the low FODMAP diet for treating irritable bowel syndrome. And so that's, that's just one example of the way in which meditation or um, mindfulness can be very helpful to your gut microbiome. And there, by the way, there's, there's a lot more data. If you want to look at irritable bowel syndrome, there's a ton of data that exists dating all the way back to the nineties in terms of looking at the benefits of meditation Um, or mindfulness-type practices for the treatment of this type of disease state. And really, when I say we need more data, what I'm really specifically referring to is data related to the microbiome itself. And there's going to be more studies coming, but where we're at right now is mostly animal model studies, which are showing benefits.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you. They're both what we call low-hanging fruit. So for anybody listening at home who doesn't understand that concept, it's more around – to i guess improve your health you you clean up the easiest things first you don't go for the hardest thing to change you go for the easiest thing to change and as dr b said getting 8 hours of sleep that's actually cool like that's something that we should be aiming to do every single day and actually managing our stress levels we live in such a fast-paced world and we're so connected to our technology I mean our phones are constantly buzzing and constantly going off and we spend these absorbent amounts on so of uh, time on social media and even young children they're, they're addicted to the likes and that sort of thing and that dopamine release from or what social media gives us these days that we just forget the simple pleasures and things like yoga and meditation are so beneficial for IBS and I, I say Dr. B to a lot of my clients they come into my clinic what even talk about food. I just ask them about their sleep and their stress and they leave my clinic and they sort of turn around and they go, y- you didn't ask me what I eat. You didn't give me any nutrition strategies. And I <clears> say, I-, I didn't need to. I just, I need you to manage your stress levels and do a little <clears throat> bit of, uh, just calm down a little bit, manage that anxiety because the anxiety and the stress, and a lot of people don't even realize that they're stressed um, and I see a lot of people come into my clinic and they're so their shoulders are up like this and they're so anxious that I can see it in their body language. And mm-hmm. by the time that they leave, it was almost like they just needed somebody to listen to them. And just that in itself was helpful. So even things like talking to another human being or doing some journaling can be really um, great for our stress levels as well, because a lot of us don't realize that we're stressed because we have that constant low level of stress in our diet all of the time. And stress elicits gut health symptoms as well. You know, when you're stressed, your bowel, um, it it speeds up, doesn't it? Everything sort of goes through it faster and it can cause a lot more diarrhea and gut-related conditions. Um, do you find that with a lot of your clients as well, that it just sort of exacerbate things as well when we're more stressed and they're more anxious?
1: I mean, honestly, I don't even have to look at my clients. I just think about medical school. <laughs> like. When I was in medical school and it was a big test day, you had a line out the bathroom door because everyone had upset stomach. Um, so yeah, no, but I do see it in my clients. And I, I think, you know, the key here um, that you're touching on that's really important is that it, diet is not easy to do. Um, to change your diet is is tough and it requires commitment um, and persistence and obviously, The other thing is you need to have a clear vision of what direction you want to go with things. And I'm a big believer in small changes, progress, um, not perfection, not trying to be perfect, but just kind of, okay, I'm happy with myself and the progress that I'm making. And once you get that ball rolling in the right direction, you'll feel so much better that you're going to want to keep moving in that direction a radical change doing some sort of crash diet being like okay i'm doing a 4 week thing that doesn't work you need something that you can commit yourself to and stick to and continue to do but i appreciate that you start off even though you even though you are you know a dietitian by trade i appreciate that you start off talking about these lifestyle elements because that is so easy to do it's not hard to do you just got to change the way that you do things whereas the diet is more of a challenge
0: and I guess we're getting to the end of this podcast, but there's probably one thing that um we sort of talked a lot about was that dysbiosis. And so I guess my final question for you, which I hope the listeners at home will get a lot out of, was a lot of people, as you mentioned, talk about dysbiosis and leaky gut as sort of the same sort of thing, Um, which I'm not, I don't believe that a lot of people with gut health symptoms essentially have leaky gut, but I guess this concept of dysbiosis um. For our listeners at home a lot of the what you see on social media and that sort of thing with leaky gut is cutting things out it's beginning to exclude things like cut out gluten cut out dairy cut out grains all that sort of thing whereas I'm a big believer in eat the things that you love um and just that abundance of plants so in terms of um your knowledge around I guess correcting dysbiosis what would you say would be the biggest things for people to do at home you know you see so many restrictions online, but I'm a big believer in, um, eating things in abundance in particular plants. What are your feelings around, um, trying to improve that gut dysbiosis that a lot of people may have?
1: Um, so I guess first let me define dysbiosis and, and I'll just be honest and come clean. Like there's no test for dysbiosis. Okay. Someone who's claims that they have a test for dysbiosis, it doesn't exist. Um, so Dysbiosis is a little bit of a challenge, even among the scientific community, to define, and they will argue over. It. There's no gold standard of okay, this is the way that we define dysbiosis, but it, the concept is there, and it's very the concept is very clear, um, which is that it's a loss of harmony within the gut. It is it is a loss of the healthy, good, anti-inflammatory bacteria. It is the emergence of excessive amounts of inflammation-producing or disease-producing bacteria, and that loss of balance does have an effect on the local um, cellular structure within the gut, specifically it can cause damage to the type junctions that basically hold the colon cells together. And so there's this barrier that's supposed to exist in the colon. And if you damage these tight junctions, then you can break down the barrier. It's like punching a hole in in a wall or punching a hole in someone's fence. And you open it up and now you are allowing the release or the leak of stomach contents. And one of the things that can be released is something called bacterial endotoxin. Bacterial endotoxin is the cause of inflammation. Bacterial endotoxin can cause low-grade inflammation, like the kind that we're talking about, which can lead to chronic disease. Bacterial endotoxin can also surge and drive acute inflammation. For example, the person who comes into the hospital with sepsis, septic shock, where they have an overwhelming systemic infection and they have dropped their blood pressure and they have lost consciousness, they're not aware of you or what's going on and their organs are shutting down, that is a person in septic shock, and that disease process is driven by this bacterial endotoxin. So bacterial endotoxin is bad stuff. And when we think about dysbiosis, we think about damage to the gut microbes, breakdown of the tight junctions, which leads to increased intestinal permeability. Some people would call that leaky gut. And the third part is the release of bacterial endotoxin. So that is the three-step process of dysbiosis. Damage to the microbes, breakdown of the tight junctions, and release a bacterial endotoxin. And what I think about is I think about short-chain fatty acids. Because when you think about all three of these steps, short-chain fatty acids increase the growth of the anti-inflammatory bacteria, and believe it or not, will directly suppress the inflammatory bacteria. I'm talking about E. coli, salmonella, shigella, These are household names that many people are aware of that they know. Oh my gosh, E. coli, that's not a good one. (laughs) Short-chain fatty acids like butyrate will directly suppress those microbes and they will augment the healthy microbes. So when we talk about this balance, what are we doing? We're reharmonizing that balance, getting it back to where it needs to be. Short-chain fatty acids will actually repair tight junctions. Correct increase intestinal permeability, correct leaky gut. And short-chain fatty acids have been shown through the consumption of fiber to reduce the release of bacterial endotoxin. So when we talk about trying to correct the gut microbiome, this is where I think our attention really should be. And the problem is that in the United States, and you guys in Australia have the same problem, so does the UK and so does Europe. In the U.S., no one is consuming fiber because people aren't really eating real fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. In the U.S., the average American, that is about 10% of their diet, real food. 10% is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. And about 25% of their calories come from animal products, meat, dairy, eggs, which is the stuff that we talked about in that study, the nature study from 2014 with Dr. Warren David. And what's left behind, so I just gave you 35%, which means that 65% of the American diet is processed food. It, it doesn't matter if that's vegan. It doesn't matter if that's vegan. That's trash. And no matter who you are, all diets would agree that processed food is bad. So no matter what you do, you should try, you should try to eliminate those processed foods. By eliminating processed foods, By ramping up the fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. I mean, take that 65% and replace it with fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. And now you are 75% plant-based. And that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, I personally would continue to push that forward. You look at the blue zones, Leanne, which you mentioned before. The blue zones are these five communities from around the world where people live to be 100 years old at a rate that's off the charts. Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Sardinia off the coast of Italy, Ikaria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan. And number five is in my country in the U.S., Loma Linda, California, where the seven-day Adventists live. And they live on average 10 to 12 years more than the average American does. And they live in the same country. They eat from the same food sources. They have the same health care. All of those places are at least 90% plant-based. So I'm a big believer that we should strive being 90% plant-based, but again, it's not about doing this today. It's about progress, not perfection. Some of the things that can help us in terms of healing the gut and getting more of those short-chain fatty acids, I am a believer in prebiotic supplements. Now, I will never put supplements before diet. It will always be diet and lifestyle first, always. A supplement is what the word literally says. It is a supplement to a healthy diet. It will get you more. But the consumption of a prebiotic supplement um, examples include uh, partially hydrolyzed guar gum, acacia powder, uh, wheat dextrin, uh, oligosaccharides which is a fermented one. All of these things can be transformed into short-chain fatty acids by your gut microbes and provide the prebiotics. Probiotics, is there a role? Not, in my opinion, for the routine average person, Um, but in the person who has digestive disease, there is data to suggest that probiotics can be helpful, particularly people that have irritable bowel syndrome. The role of probiotics is not to change your microbiome. The role of probiotics is to help you get more from your diet. So you have to feed the microbes with the prebiotics. But by taking the probiotic, it will help you to process and digest those foods to get more of the short-chain fatty acids. The formula is simple. Prebiotics plus probiotics produces postbiotics. And when I say postbiotics, what I'm talking about tonight is short-chain fatty acids. So you get your prebiotics and your probiotics, and that's what you get the end result. That to me is what it's about in terms of correcting leaky gut. It's about trying to get that butyrate that has been shown to affect all three levels of dysbiosis. And the way that we get it is with our diet, with our lifestyle, with potentially a prebiotic supplement and with possibly a probiotic supplement.
0: And that is such a powerful take-home message because you know people would love to cut things out rather than actually add things into their diet. So You know, you're sitting here as a a wonderful health professional telling people to eat more plants in abundance. And that has such a powerful message rather than cut this out, cut this out, cut this out. It's eat plants in abundance.
1: Can I say one thing about that real quick too, is that I've I've noticed a dietary trend recently that has me alarmed. There have been quite a few dietary trends that, that have made me alarmed, but this one I don't really like. Um, and that is that I see people on the internet, never it's never a medical doctor, but um, I see some people, influencers on the internet, who are um, promoting a diet that is built on calorie deficit and it doesn't matter where your calories come from. And that is a terrible idea because I've spent this entire hour talking to you about short chain fatty acids and the benefits of that. I've spent the entire time, we've spent the entire time talking about food in abundance, and the diversity of plants and how the diversity of plants is the number one determinant of a healthy gut microbiome. And we've talked about all the benefits of a healthy gut microbiome. And now here come these people that say that the only thing that matters is calorie deficit because if you have a calorie deficit, then you will lose weight. And guess what? You will. You will lose weight. But that doesn't mean that you are making a healthy gut by eating ice cream and candy and bacon all day long. You are destroying your gut in the process of losing weight. And you are not doing anything to make your body actually globally healthy. And so I think that the important thing here is, as you are saying, Leanne, food in abundance. And the beautiful thing is that we don't need to overthink things like this. We don't need to be doing like counting literally our calories to ensure that we are in calorie deficit. Do you think that they were counting their calories 500 years ago when obesity did not exist? No, they were not. The difference is that they were eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. And when you consume fiber, when you consume plants in abundance, whole plants, not processed food, your body has hormones that will automatically signal you when you are full. You will not overeat. You will not have a post-food, post-meal hangover, and you will not gain weight. And there are studies to back this up. There was a study by Neil Barnard, who is an American doctor, and he had people on a high-carb diet, the opposite of the keto diet. They were on a 70% carb diet, but those carbs are real fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, real food. And they were told, eat as much as you want eat as much as you want. There's no restriction. If you're hungry, eat. And guess what happened when they ate this diet that was real food? They lost on average 14 pounds. The average person lost 14 pounds. And if you look, they dropped their body mass index by two points, which is big. That's a huge difference. And they dropped their fat content and their visceral fat content. So literally, they're eating as much as they want. If you're hungry, eat food. But if you're eating the right food, if you're eating the right food, then your body has the built-in hormones, the built-in balance to tell you when to stop, and you're totally fine. The issue that we run into, and there's actually a new study that just came out in the last two weeks to, to say this. The issue is that people are eating a lot of processed foods. Processed foods, because they have the absence of fiber, Do not trigger those hormones to tell you when to stop. So you eat, eat, eat. And next thing you know, you get that feeling, oh, oh, I got to loosen my belt. And then you have that post-meal hangover where you need an energy drink in the afternoon because of what you ate at lunch just to get through your day. And that's the result of the fact that you're eating food that's processed food. It's unnatural and it lacks fiber. That is not a healthy diet, even if you force yourself into calorie deficit.
0: 110% agree with you. And I think that um, as a nation, even Australians, and I'm sure is in America as well, we're starting to realize the importance of fiber, but alas, so are all of the, um, the food companies as well. And you see a lot of these products. Um, with you know gut health stickers on them like gut healthy it might be a muesli bar it might be a cereal because they boosted the overall fiber content but I guess the key take-home message which I'm sure you'll confirm for our listeners is really it's the fiber from plants that really matters you know adding a whole heap of inulin to your cereal still probably doesn't make it a healthy choice. Um, so really, you've got to get that fiber content from whole foods. You've got to have that physical action of chewing because digestion really begins in our mouth to have that, that sensation and that feeling of satiety and fullness after your meal. The more processed food that you have, the, least, the less digestion that your body needs to do, the more you need to eat to feel fuller. Are you in agreement, there, Dr. B? It needs to come from plants. It can't just be any fiber at all.
1: You, you can't, you can't go. So I'm sitting here and telling you prebiotic supplements. I, I do believe in them, but no, you, you can't, to correct myself, or at least, to at least be more clear on this. You can't go and consume inulin supplement, or you can't go and consume a processed food that has a boosted level of fiber and call it the same thing mm-hmm. because it's not. And you know, the food industry is going to ride the trend. It's, it's always going to happen. Whatever the trend is, my book is going to talk about fiber. You know, As I said before, I have an entire chapter on short-chain fatty acids. If after reading my book, the big trends around the world is for people to start consuming more fiber, then the, the, the food industry is going to start trying to convince you to buy their product because it has more fiber. Don't fall for the trap. It's simple. Nature created these foods. We evolved consuming these foods. They're perfectly designed as is. And the only way that you can really mess them up is to go and humanize them by adding chemicals and turning them into some sort of Franken food. That's the only way that you can mess it up. You eat it as a real food. Is where are the cases of harm being done by people consuming real fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, nuts? Doesn't exist. Where is the evidence of benefit? Tens of thousands of studies.
0: Thank you. That's, yeah, just everything that I sort of wanted the listeners to to know and learn from you. We've got so much knowledge from you today. Thank you so much. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your book? Is it a a secret? Is it going to be published soon? Where can we purchase (sighs) it from? I'm super excited. I'll be one of the first.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I can't wait to share with you. It's, you know, I talk a lot about it because it has become my obsession over the last eight months ever since I got the book deal. And I just, you know basically I did not cut any corners. I just dug deep and this was a pure passion project. I mean, if I was doing this to try to make money, then it would have been really hard for me to do because I was waking up super early and all the stuff that I'm telling people not to do, I was doing because I was trying to write this book. Um, But I am so excited to share this book and it it just just turned in my first draft about a month ago. And I think it's probably going to come out in early 2020. So I'm super excited to share it with people. I think pre-orders will be available probably starting this fall. And, you know, maybe there's a way that that you and I can connect and we can share with your listeners when that time comes, or we'll be recording another podcast potentially. But um, I am super excited about it and can't wait to share. And I'll and also just add that if you want to hear about that stuff, just come and follow me on Instagram. You can find me on social media. Um, and my name there is the Gut Health MD.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. B, for joining us today. Um, I have so many questions that our listeners have sent in, but I think that we'll have to save that for a second podcast just because you've given us so many pearls of wisdom in this podcast today. And I just want our listeners to sort of be able to take that in and absorb that, and then we can do the whole Q&A in another podcast. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Awesome. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it so much. Great conversation.
0: Wow. Wasn't that amazing, guys? Even I learnt new things about gut health, so I am sure that you guys found it absolutely incredible. If you enjoyed this episode today, it would mean the world to us if you could please tap the little gold stars and leave us a rating in the purple iTunes app. And finally, please share this episode onto your Instagram or Facebook stories. By sharing this episode onto your stories, you help us reach more people with proper evidence and science. And for that, we are honestly so grateful. As the more people who rate and share this podcast, the more that iTunes will push it up in the ratings so new people can be exposed to it and hear the amazing advice Dr. B has to say. So please take a moment to rate this podcast and share it onto your stories on social media. And if you know anyone who is suffering with gut health issues or who just needs a little gut health loving, please share this episode with them. I'll catch you guys in the next one.